You're tuned to Radio BCC and this is the Six O'Clock Squill. to episode six of the six o'clock swill on radio bcc that's tim blair simon collins and me nick cater later we'll be joined by janet albrexon to talk about the latest outbreak in bigotry and sectarianism on the fashionable left as well as this week's resignation at the abc but first let's ask the covid19 question everybody seems to be avoiding do lockdowns actually work tim you've been looking at the form guide how are things in alabama Yes. Now, Alabama, I've been following a little bit since about uh, June, July or something. Uh, They've had, obviously, many more infections and deaths than uh, any Australian state. But they have resisted going into lockdowns. They they abandoned a mask mandate at one point. And and even when there was a bit of a surge, a considerable surge, they held their nerve. And now, infections in that state, a beautiful state by the way, Birmingham, Alabama is one of the best cities I've ever visited. Infections are down to around 1,200 a day out of a population of 5 million, so you know it's not too far away from Victoria. Victoria, as we speak on Friday, is around about 1,800 a day. So you've got one state that's in the most deep lockdowns of any city on earth, well, you know, one capital, and in Alabama they've gone exactly the opposite way and infections are lower. Just something to think about there. Well, I think this is this is true in Australia, of course, true that, 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 that you know that the most lockdown state, in fact, the most lockdown place in the world now, as of this week, it's overtaken Buenos Aires. It has had the worst result by a long way. Surely, any rational policymaker would say, "Well, it's not working, is it? Let's try something else." Well, yes, but uh, they always fall back on um, the unprovable in these sort of cases. So this is will be it's similar to uh, Kevin Rudd claiming that he avoided the global economic crisis. Of course, there's no way of telling because, you know, we don't have, you know, a second version of Australia to compare it to when he uh, depleted the budget in, in an effort to save us. So people say, well, if it weren't for the lockdowns, Melbourne would be at, you know, 20,000 infections a day. Well, unprovable, but they'll, they'll, they, they love their little articles of faith. Mm-hmm. Do. Sticking with the states, Tim, the 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 the, the, the the occupant of the White House, I remember the days when the occupant of the White House was referred to as president, you know, President Richard Nixon, President Donald Trump. Uh, suddenly with this presidency, it's, um, it's changed a bit, hasn't it? Should we have a listen? Yes. Fuck Joe Biden was the anthem this weekend. Fuck Joe Biden! Fuck Joe Biden! Fuck Joe Biden! So this is just another reflection of the, the coarseness of modern political debate the world over or have they got a point i think they do have a point and it's it's obviously very catchy people are people are enjoying it it was interesting that um at a nascar race which is not a very democrat friendly uh, demographic they began the chant while the winning driver was being congratulated uh, on the track by a uh, i think it was an nbc broadcaster and she said and you can hear the crowd brandon Celebrating, <laughs> and you could hear the crowd obviously saying, "You know, f Joe Biden." And um, her, her her interpretation of it was there, they were saying, "Let's go, Brandon," <laughs> which is a, a pretty uh, pretty good misreading of uh, the situation. So, Simon, look, we're we're in New South Wales. Freedom Day is around the corner. We're about to be trusted outside. I think we've still got we, we've got to wear a mask. I can't remember, but uh, 
we're getting some freedoms back. How do you feel about that? Well, obviously, I'm still slightly disappointed that there wasn't as big a take-up uh, in, in terms of applications for membership of my movement, Masquerbaters. But, you know, we, we should be careful what we wish for. The truth is that one of the one of the one of the things that's one of the big learnings out of this whole experience for for you know liberal Western democracies like Australia is that you know you know we had we had all these these freedoms taken away, which of course offended the sensibilities of you know people like the three of us. But an awful lot of a lot of people in these in, in countries like Australia uh, have, have have quite enjoyed this the absence of these freedoms, and it made me start to think that there's a lot of people who will. And let me tell you, it's you can see it already in states like Victoria, where you know the people are anticipating the freedoms reluctantly. You know, and they do they really want all these freedoms back? We we always assume a bit a bit. It's a bit like democracy. We always assume that you know every other country wants the, the kind of the, the the democracy and freedoms that we've enjoyed as birthrights. But this last eighteen months or so, I reckon, has given a few people a tantalising taste of totalitarianism. And that some people will 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 look back on this nostalgically, uh, you know. We always say, for example, it must be awful living in countries like China where they've got you know they've got no choice or anything. Let me tell you, one of the things about going to a Chinese restaurant, the menus are always huge, and I've always wondered why that was the case. And it may be because this is the Chinese mm. Communist Party's way of reminding people. They say, "See, you see this huge choice you've got just for a meal. Do you want to be confronted by this this this?" massive puzzling confusing choice in every aspect of your life do you want to have to have 500 uh, careers to choose from do you want to have 500 mm. schools they've got an absolute point there simon yeah there's only one thing longer and more confusing than a menu in a chinese restaurant you know there's only one thing with more numbers on it and that's the ballot paper for the new south wales upper house <laughs> so, you know the two you can see their yeah. point but look, I, I think you're right that they, the, 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 some people actually love this authoritarian hellhole that we've been in, especially those, I suppose, who get to sit at the top of it, you know, the, uh, and, and the people whose jobs don't change and, and just get to spend more time at home mixing up smoothies and shampooing the cat, you know. So, look, I, I think it is. And, and, and for those people, of course, the election Dominic Perrottet, as the new Premier of New South Wales, has been a disaster because he's... I was very interested this week that he's abandoned... He's actually scrapped the crisis cabinet and he's put the Chief Health Officer back in her office and said, don't come out unless unless I call you. And, and this, of course, has angered a number of people, especially the journalists who don't get to do that... Uh, who don't get their hour asking the Premier fatuous and irrelevant questions and it's angered i love this it's angered the ama the australian medical association their president <laughs> said they're very concerned at the shift in approach the government's crisis cabinet has morphed into an economic recovery committee said Corshit. and i don't think he meant that in a nice way i can't hear it any way else but nice uh, that's that's terrific it's so uh, great just to just uh, on simon's point about the fear of freedom and uh, the way Different people uh, have embraced the their restrictions. When I was a kid, growing up in Werribee, I asked one of my classmates, one of my friends, you know, I said, what is it with you Greeks? Like, your houses are all these crazy colours, purple and pink, and look at your cars. You know, you go for the crazy colours. And uh, my friend said, um, yeah, I asked my parents about this once. 
and uh, and they explained that uh, from in their Greek village, from where they immigrated to Australia, it was the law that their houses had to be painted white. So suddenly, they've come to Australia. They've been given this gift of freedom of colour and Bunnings, and they've gone for it. And Bunnings, they've got suddenly they've got a, all the colours of the bow, dude. So they they went for it. Good on them. A full Dulux chart. It's exciting. And there are other there are other um, institutions, not just in things like you know, uh, uh, real estate and house colours, but if you think about it, there are other cultures where where we can see examples of absence of choice being provably good. If you take, uh, for example, uh, Indian Hindu communities, uh, uh, the, the the idea of uh, uh, arranged marriages. Now, let me tell you. The incidence of divorce and marriage breakup in those in those societies is much lower than than the, the, than societies where you know we we've celebrated this idea we can choose we can marry anyone we want and look what look how it ends up for an awful lot of us. Uh, whereas in those in those societies, they tend not to they tend not to break up those families. A guy once uh, visiting friends in Los Angeles, uh, they volunteered to go to the shops. Of, you know what what do you guys want? And they gave me a little list. Milk, simple enough. No, not in an American supermarket. There was like a whole like 40 metre aisle of not just light milk, you know, different qualities of uh, levels of fat and so on, but uh, milk that had been um, produced from cows eating certain different grains. And it just went on and on. I just, finding standard milk was like, I don't know, finding a gold nugget. It was unbelievable. Well, well, and actually, this is this is, and I speak here as a, as an advertising man. This is why advertising is so important in Western, you know, liberal democracies. It's because it's a, it's a, it's an antidote to the te- to the to the the um, the tyranny of free choice. See, people walk into supermarkets and they're terrified of this. There are seventeen different washing powders on the shelf. What 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 are they going to do? Or they go into the the bottle shop. There are sixteen different lagers. What are they going to do? You know what they're going to do? Thank God, someone like me gave them a reason to buy one rather than the other one. Because I, if I can, if I can make I, the truth is, they buy it because it made them laugh, or you know, or, or or they enjoyed the jingle. Speaking of making people laugh, of course, as we were talking last week to Brendan O'Neill, that's become um, almost impossible in Britain, certainly for the BBC, uh, who no longer make funny comedies. In fact. Perhaps they're not comedies at all unless they're funny. I suppose that's a, an interesting debating point. But look, one of the few places where they are allowed to have a laugh apparently is at uh, party conferences. And, and Boris Johnson played it up for all it was worth. He, 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 I thought he was very funny. I, I loved his comments about AUKUS. If you want a supreme example of global Britain in action, of something daring and brilliant that would simply not have happened if we'd remained in the EU... I give you AUKUS. AUKUS. An idea so transparently right... An idea so transparently right that Labour conference voted overwhelmingly against it. And I, I know there has been a certain raucous caucus from the anti-AUKUS caucus. But AUKUS is simply a recognition of the reality that the world is tilting on its axis. And our trade and relations in the Indo-Pacific region are becoming more vital than ever before. And that's why we sent our amazing carrier strike group to the Far East, HMS Queen Elizabeth, as long as the entire Palace of Westminster. 
and rather more compelling as an argument than many of the speeches made in the House of Commons. It has. Yes, and he then went on to say some wonderful things about Australia and Britain. But a funny speech, and uh, I think he was criticised for that. What did you make of it, Tim? Well, of course he's going to be criticised in the UK for joking. Uh, even the goodies is these days too extreme for uh, for uh, left-leaning British audiences. Probably not for British people in general, who were kind of cut out of this whole debate and uh, are overruled by their social and ethical and moral superiors. But yeah, jokes will always get you in trouble because... Um, you know, there's, uh, it's actually very hard to come up with a joke that won't offend someone because that's the nature of joke. Uh, unless, unless the butt of the joke is always um, uh, a, white, a, white, a straight white man, then, then, you, then you're on very safe ground. <laughs> you can also get in trouble for not making a joke if uh, you have enough social media enemies or, or the mob rises up. We had a case during the week, a Melbourne real estate agent who um, on his private Facebook page uh, was researching some home gym equipment, as apparently you do. And uh, he noticed, uh, he just wrote this, no Australian made logo on this one. Can I assume on this and the price that it's a Chinese import? Wanting to avoid Chinese made products if I can. Now it sounds all fair enough, he wants to buy Australian made. (laughs) <laughs> Huge uproar online. He got attacked left, right and centre. And he was fired. His company fired him for racism because he was looking for an Australian-made sticker, which is what we were always told to do. And he didn't want, didn't want to buy products from a nation, by the way, that is banning so many Australian products and so many Australian goods. So that's it, is it? And RM Williams boots are now politically incorrect, are they? We're not allowed. Anything Australian made is gone. An Australian made sticker because it excludes China is obviously racist, right? So this guy's been booted. He's, by all accounts, a lovely guy. Donates to the um, his local sports teams in uh, in suburban Melbourne. Uh, as a young daughter. And I look up his ratings, you know, uh, you see these things where you know, rate real estate agents, rate teachers, rate whoever. Now, real estate agents don't have a great public image in a lot of cases. This guy's rating is 4.9 out of 5. I don't think you get there if you're a rip-off merchant and people don't like you. He's now out of work because of the social media mob and his company's absolute gutlessness. It's appalling. Since when a real estate agent supposed to be our moral guardians? When they're supposed to be the epitome of moral. Oh, it gets I worse, mean... Nick. It gets worse. Um, the the guy's former boss said he was offering counselling to any staff who were distressed by these horrible remarks. For the love of talking about excluding people against the unvaccinated, that dreadful race of people that are walking around this community, putting everybody else at risk, apparently. I still can't get over this. It just seems to me the only people they're putting at risk is themselves, if if we believe these vaccines are so effective, isn't it? I mean, you're worried about it, you take the vaccine and let other people wander around and do whatever they want. Well, that was the idea of the vaccine, but they've since walked it back. I mean, uh, not too long ago, if you wrote on Twitter, for example, that um, the vaccine didn't give you full immunity, you'd be... You'd be 
canned because it was this was described by Twitter as misleading. Then, of course, everyone's like, well, it gives you some protection against dying, but it doesn't make you altogether safe from infection. And then it was like, oh, you've got less risk of going to a hospital. But, but I mean, this uh, vaccine, vaccines is another thing which COVID has inverted the meaning of. You know, like, uh, you know, the police used to be a community service that you can rely on for help and support. Now, now it's now it's a bunch of guys who rush in and hit you, hit you, and spray you with, with, uh, and, and and arrest you for no reason. But vaccines used to be something that if you have a vaccine, you're safe, you're okay. Now a vaccine, no, now a vaccine is something mm. you have to have again and again and again and again, and it still might not protect you. Well, look at Israel. Look at Israel. I think uh, they're on compulsory third shots now. Probably the most, one of the most vaccinated countries on earth. And um, now there are their infection rates are going up. Yeah. So yeah, we've been sold a bit of a dud, perhaps. Did you see that wonderful case in? Um, well, perhaps not wonderful, but uh, instructive case in in Victoria, where a construction worker had been. Um, arrested by police because rather than get the jab done himself, he found a homeless, blind homeless person <laughs> have the jab for him. <laughs> he, 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 I wonder what other kind of medical procedures we'd like to outsource, you know, to people. I mean, instead of me going to the dentist, perhaps I could find a, a homeless person with bad teeth and send them along to have root canal therapy instead of me and save myself the pain. Maybe it would be a bit like, you know, if you're, you know, in America, if you're um, if you're short of money and you're, you're you're down on your uppers, you can go and donate sperm. Maybe you can go and donate your your the top of your arm for an injection and get a bit of money that way. Maybe it's a bit like carbon credits for companies. If they if they buy enough carbon credits, they can keep polluting. <laughs> if you if you pay for enough homeless people, if you pay for enough people, homeless people to have a vaccine, you can go and super spread to your heart's content. You just got to find. You just got to find a vein that hasn't been wrecked by <laughs> injecting heroin for centuries, and you go, off you go. That'll be that'll that'll be hard for Tim because he lives on the central coast. <laughs> I'll thank you for slurring my lovely neighbourhood. <laughs> Look, before we go to Janet Albrechtson, our our guest, uh, and we're going to be talking to Janet about Dominic Perrottet, Monsieur Perry Perrottet, the new premier of New South Wales. Uh, he, he, I'm told that he, he, he does get irritated if people call him Perotet. Um, what do you make of that? Uh, Simon, you're, you're a Francophile. Is it, and, and should the French, should the returning French ambassador be celebrating the fact that we have a quasi-Frenchman as the uh, premier of one of our major states? Well, c- clearly, because of the parlous state of our relationship with France at the moment, um, thanks to those subs, I think it's important that we do make some kind of gestures towards a, an appreciation of their cultures. I should I should actually preface this by saying that years and years ago, I was, I was on a Channel 7 show uh, about Brits who live in Australia called Pommies. And at one point, the, the maker said, after living in Australia for 12 years, what do you most miss about England? What do you miss most about England? And I genuinely said, France. <laughs> As off the top, you know, from, on the... Uh, and it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a sincere response, but um, yeah, I think it's important. So in fact, I actually wrote my you know I wrote my weekly limerick about this. I wanted to you know as a gesture of appreciation and that we do take these things seriously, not just out of respect for our new premier, but also the culture that his name comes from. Should I give you mm-hmm. the limerick? Please, providing you're not 
you know, being disrespectful to a Franco. Yeah, it might, you don't want it to be racist. I don't think so. I don't think so because I you'll be you'll lose your gig as a real estate agent. Well, I get a couple of French. <laughs> I get a couple of French references into this one. Okay, we've got plenty to drink to today. Lockdown's over, so hip hip hooray! That our lives can go on deserves Dom Perignon, but we'll settle for Dom Perite. Very good, very good. <laughs> However. I have a competitor limerick. Oh, the War of the Limericks. It's not as good. I'm not. I'm not an ad man, but uh, I'm not even sure it scans properly. But uh, let, let's let's see how I go. Okay, okay. Is it perotet or perote? Do we say the t or say it nay? Or do we devise another way and call him Chook <laughs> like Palaszczuk? Oh, very good. <laughs> And now I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast a writer whose twice-weekly columns in The Australian are a must-read for anyone who thinks about politics seriously enough not to be taken in with the platitudes and cant that characterises so-called debate on the comfort zone left. Uh, she's worked as a solicitor in commercial law, attained a doctor of ju- juris, jur- juridical, jur- you might pronounce that for me in a minute, Janet, studies from the University of Sydney. She's written for numerous other publications, including the Australian Financial Review, The Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Sunday Age and the Wall Street Journal. And now to add to that fantastic CV, she can put down that she was a guest on Radio BCC. Janet, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Janet, we were prompted to get you on. We'd, we'd love to have you on any time, but uh, this week particularly because you wrote uh, a, a very uh, good column uh, for The Australian, having a well-aimed shot at the people who've been attacking the new New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, simply on the basis that he uh, is a father of six and a Catholic. And as you point out, the, the same people that would never, ever criticise a political leader for being a Muslim, a Sikh or a Buddhist or anything else are happy to reboot the anti-Catholic sectarian bigotry that disfigured Austria, Sydney until post-war immigration and multiculturalism made it completely unacceptable. It, it, I think it makes your blood boil as much as it does mine. It does, Nick. And, you know, the thing about this is that I'm not a Catholic. I'm, I'm not religious. But it makes any person with, you know, any understanding of what tolerance really means um, makes their blood boil because it's just so wrong. It is just so wrong for the left. I mean, they have no self-awareness to be launching into Dominic Perrottet because he is a, not just a Catholic, I mean, let's say it as it is, he's a conservative Catholic and he has six kids, he's a family man. I mean, this kind of stuff drives them nuts. And yet this is the same group of people who use the word tolerance and inclusiveness in every second sentence that they utter and yet a man comes along who's a married man, a family man, he has six kids and he happens to be a conservative Catholic and it's all they can talk about. They're obsessed by it. It was the first thing that the ABC focused on uh, as soon as his, you know, he was about to become Premier. He was described as a conservative Catholic, a, a father of six. Um, they, you know, they would trot out people like Jane Caro to make it to you know to to ensure that we knew that being a catholic as a premier was going to be a problem for women well as i wrote i'm a woman i'm 
as I said, not a Catholic. It's not a problem for me. In fact, the values that Dominique Perrottet have are very similar to the values that I have. And I think you'd find that they are very similar to the values that many mainstream Australians have. And again, you don't have to be Catholic to have those values, to believe in the value of the family, to believe in smaller government, to believe in personal responsibility, lower taxes, the dignity of work. These are basic values. And yet the attempts to paint Perrottet, and of course, if you talk about Perrottet, you've got to talk about M M Morrison, as, as one of the um, pundits did this week. To paint them as non-mainstream is just ludicrous when you look at what's happening on the left. I mean, if you want you know, non-mainstream, look at their obsessions with white privilege. It doesn't get more non-mainstream than that. Janet, um, the left, it's, every day is Halloween for the left. They've always got it. They, they love something to scare themselves by. You know, climate change is terrifying to them, even though it doesn't kill anybody. It's never killed anyone, and uh, they're in panic about it. They're, they're scared about a Catholic father of six who isn't scary. Well, the only scary thing about him is he's thirty-nine and looks like he lives in a crypt or something. I don't know, but it's not. Um, it's not a real fright. You know, these people are panicking all the time. But, you know, show them something like, I don't know, uh, murders and uh, rapes occurring in Europe following mass Islamic immigration, and they're like, eh, there's nothing, nothing to look at here. Move along. But it's the values, isn't it, Tim? It's the values that they don't like. And look, I think, it, it, you know, we cannot have this discussion without talking about some of uh, Dominic Perrottet's values that he has been open about, including on abortion. Um, but let's remember that when he voted on a conscience vote against the abortion bill in New South Wales, so did a number of the moderates in the New South Wales Liberal Parliamentary Party. So it's not as if you have to be a conservative Catholic to, to look at that particular bill when it came before Parliament and decide to vote against it. Um, on same-sex marriage, he's been very clear what his view is. It's not about, he's not about to you know, overturn these things. He doesn't even have the power to overturn same-sex marriage, and yet he was asked about you know, what he might do on same-sex marriage. This is how crazy it's getting. Um, I, I, would, I would point out that, you know, what really upsets them, I think, is that he is anti-lockdown. And the left just love to be locked down. You know, they love their own company. They just... Well, again, that's, a, that's, another, that's, another, that's another Halloween. Yeah, it's exactly. Another, Halloween. another thing to be scared about, um, a virus that kills, you know, barely anyone, um, unless you're over 80. So, uh, yeah, what can you say? I'm, I'm pleased. I think it's fabulous that they've got someone to be scared of. I thought one of the, one of the things you pointed out, which was... Um struck me too was in reading that dreadful piece by that woman who calls herself a reverence but she's in fact uh, well she then goes on to describe herself as a social activist and i don't know something now else. that's she a isn't... scary title if ever yeah. there was a scary title. <laughs> but, but you know she one of her criticisms of, of both uh, dominic perrottet and the prime minister scott morrison is that they are fundamentalists now if anybody takes a fundamentalist attitude to the world and the way they look at the world, it is surely the modern left. It is, and if anyone rejects logic and reason and other points of view, it is the modern left. So I actually thought this woman was pulling my leg when she <laughs> wrote, and I need to read it out. I think people will really, really enjoy this. Please. Okay, I'm gonna read out what she said. She said, fundamentalisms vary greatly. What they have in common though is a narrowness of conviction that cannot be challenged by logic evidence or appeals to reason. In private life, this causes sometimes irredeemable rifts between family or friends, and in public life, it drives attitudes and often policies that may be severely at odds with the central demands 
of democracy. I mean, what about the Me Too movement and how it's thrown out due process and the presumption of innocence, right? There are all these fundamentalist views on the left that are not open to logic. In fact, if you put different views, you're usually shamed into silencing. You know, the cancelling mob that wanders around looking for the next victim, that is not healthy for democracy. That is a form of fundamentalism. Mm. As I said at the outset, there is so little self-awareness on, on the left. It is frightening. That is frightening. You know, um, we, talking about his, um, the way he's been attacked for being, well, not attacked, but he's been questioned for being, for his Christian values. And he was quite, quite smart. He made some, he made some uh, statements early on about, quite rightly say, look, he's, 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 he's completely tolerant of all religions, uh, of all faiths. But I was wondering whether uh, do you do you think, given given his uh, his his public statements on the issue in the past, uh, do you think that he will be uh, uh, tolerant about the world's biggest growing religion in Australia, the, the world's biggest growing, uh, uh, fastest growing, and um, most fundamentalist religion of all, the the religion of climate change. It's interesting, Simon, isn't it? Because I think we will discover that Perite is going to govern in the same way that John Howard did. You know, he has he has Matt Keane um, in a very senior position as treasurer. Um, Matt Keane, we know, is on the left of the Liberal Party in terms of climate change and you know possibly other policies. I think if Perite is clever. And, and the New South Wales government has already committed to a number of climate change policies, as other states have. You know, the states are well ahead of the feds, if you want to use that phrase, well ahead of. Um, but they have moved, um, you know, further to the left on climate change than the, the federal government has. I think Perite is going to stick to that. I think he's going to be clever. Um, about this and, and really try to bring that broad church to the Liberal Party um, that previous prime ministers have really failed at. You know, we haven't really had a prime minister who, who, has, who has done that, um, done that well. Morrison is, you know, he's there, um, but I don't really know what he stands for. And I think what we saw with John Howard is that the broad church works really well when the leader is conservative um, and, and then brings in the other strands of the Liberal Party. You know, when you have a Prime Minister like Malcolm Turnbull, there was no broad church, there was just Malcolm Turnbull. You know, for, for Malcolm Turnbull, a broad church was any room that fit his ego. Um, that you didn't... That's not a lot of rooms, Janet. No, no one else was really included. And that, in the end, brought him down. So I think it's going to be really interesting to watch Perite. I think it's, um, it's about time that we had a proper conservative leader who believes in, you know, the kinds of values that I think uh, many of us here believe in. Janet, just a, an observation on how he's going to lead. Um, conservative politicians tend to operate best when they operate on instinct, when they don't get tied down by advisors, tied down by committees, tied down by reports. And... Uh, in order to reach this sort of circumstance, you've generally got to be in a hurry. And he gives every impression of being in a hurry because he knows, and he's emphasised this before, every day we remain under restrictions is another day of people losing jobs, businesses closing, and the state finding it even harder to, to claw back. What sort of things, besides removing restrictions, what other urgent issues do you see Perite addressing very quickly? Well, the focus, um, as he has already said, he's you know barely been in the job a week, is going to be on resuscitating business and resuscitating lives in the west and southwest of Sydney, where they have felt the, 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 the harsh restrictions the most. 
I thought one of the, the you know the best comments to come out of uh, Dominic Perrottet this week was when he was asked by you know some annoying journalist. Actually, I don't know who it was, so I shouldn't say that. But he, he <laughs> you were probably right was, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All those people turn up to presses. I mean, get a life. Um, <laughs> why isn't the uh, why isn't the chief medical officer here? Hmm. You know, as if we all have to hold this poor woman's hand every day of our life for the last two years. Well, I don't want to hold her hand anymore. And Dominic Perrottet said, well, we have been elected as the government of New South Wales to govern New South Wales. End of story. I have been Mm. waiting 18 months for someone to say that, Tim. 18 months I have been waiting for a government leader to say, we will balance these risks. It is not up to the chief health officer to do that. And they don't do that. They look at it through this prism, which is about that narrow, which is yeah. why our lives have been that narrow for 18 months, yeah. right? It's up to Dominic Perrottet to bring our lives back. And I believe that he will do that. And I do believe he's in a rush. And, you know, the hysteria in the last 24 hours, because he's made these tiny little changes, right, to the roadmap. I mean, they're tiny. Um, and the hysteria, oh, the AMA, it's, you know, it's going to be terrible. And the ABC, it's, oh, my goodness. You know, again, it's Halloween time. Yeah. You know, they've got something to be scared of. What a miserable way to live. That was a really, really exciting thing for me this, this week, Janet. And, and as you say, I mean, the, he's made some modest changes to the roadmap or whatever it is we call, you know, the, the journey back to freedom. But he said clearly, I am the elected official. I know. I've been waiting for the Prime Minister to say that, Nick. I've been waiting for Cabinet members to point that out at the federal level. Um, and they, everyone has just handed over. They've delegated to unelected bureaucrats for 18 months. And, how, how, you know, the lives of many Australians will never, ever be the same. And that's thanks to, you know, politicians handing over to bureaucrats because they have been literally too frightened to govern. I think, you know, Australia should look back on the way we have handled this and feel a sense of shame. Do you think, I mean, we, we, we've, we, we like to talk now about, it's one of the most common subjects for debate now, is what will survive of the COVID period? What will survive into the post-COVID period? Do you think that, um, that uh, people like unelected uh, experts will now be put back in their box by people like Dominic Perrottet? Or do you think that they were, to some extent... By Perrottet, they will. Do you think, are you, are you confident about that? Well, I know, you know, like who knows what a politician is going to do, Simon. But, you know, well, I, I, of all the premiers in, in Australia, I would hope that it will be Dominic Perrottet uh, who, who will put the chief medical officer. And I have nothing against Kerry Chant. I think she's been one of the better ones. I'm certainly glad we have her and, you know, not, not some of those others. Um, but I think Dominic Perrottet will put those bureaucrats back in their box and play the role that he is meant to do, and that is to govern the state. Um, can we also just mention, you know, the guy that is sort of painted as this sort of Opus Day kind of fanatic um, has brought in to run his department, his, um, his Premier's office, um, Michael Coots Trotter, who is the husband of Tanya Plibersek. I mean, this is not some crazy tribal, you know, narrow-minded, non-inclusive, intolerant guy. This is a guy who looks for talent and wants to use it where he can. And I, again, I, I applaud that. Um, the Labor Party, I don't think, would ever do that. Um, I, I hope it's it, it's the right call, and I trust it is. I think Michael Coots Trotter is an excellent appointment, and it just shows that Dominic Perrottet is not what the left want to paint him as. You, you mentioned earlier that that um, the the left's biggest anger, in a way, has been at 
Perrottet trying to bring us out of lockdown a bit quicker. Why is it that, um, uh, the, you know, the, the comfortable intellectual left, the sort of people you hear on Radio National Breakfast, those sort of people, um, why is it that, that this is an article of faith for them, that the only way to deal with this pandemic is through this completely untried mass quarantine of, hu- of entire populations you know when, when, and why is it that when it doesn't work as it plainly isn't when you look you know victoria the most locked down city in the world has got by far the worst record in terms of covid cases and deaths in australia why can't they change their minds because you can't appeal to them with logic and reason the very points that that woman accused dominic perrette and and the right of suffering from you literally cannot appeal with facts reason or logic i mean there are two reasons why the left or many on the left let's not say all i think some people have turned the corner here um uh two reasons why they have favored lockdown and the harder the longer you know the the tougher the better for them is a they believe in a command and control kind of society and b it doesn't affect them they're still working it hasn't affected them financially um you know they they just don't have the same long-term hard kind of um, effects that other people have suffered from and if you have your livelihood stripped from you if you have that stability that keeps your family going um, that you can believe in for years to come taken from you by a, a health bureaucrat you're going to look at that health bureaucrat very differently to the way the left does they're still doing their jobs you know, they're in government positions, they get to work from home, they get to walk their dog a bit more, you know, their lives are probably better. They don't have to go to the office, they don't have to dress up. But for regular people who have lost their jobs, sorry, Tim. Yes, exactly. Well, the, the, we should never forget, Janet, that the ABC, you're mentioning people coming out in front, the ABC voted to, to not even delay a pay rise during all of this. So, you know, all in this together? Well, in the sense that they're all in our pockets for more money, yes. But the same people who are, who are grabbing more from the public purse are denouncing um, protesters in Melbourne as uh, toxic masculinity. It's a, it's, a cla- it's a straight up class war, isn't it? It is. It is. It's becoming more and more of a class war. Yeah, it is. And that's really sad to see that happen, I think, in this country. Um, it's bad enough that we divide by race, we divide by skin colour, we divide by, you know, what your sexuality is. Um, and, and to have a class war thrown into the mix, it just shows how polarising the left, the left's articles of faith are to this country. Um, they're not about uniting the country, they're about dividing the country. Well, Tim's done it. I wasn't going to mention the, the ABC in your presence, Janet, because in an otherwise glittering and successful career, uh, I have to say you're a dismal failure as a, a board member of the ABC. I've still got bruises. Can I explain the bruises? I don't know if you can see them. But, you know, there's less, there's less hair there. Because for six to eight hours every month, I'd go in and bang my head against the wall at the ABC and achieve nothing, absolutely nothing. So I've got these bruises here. Yeah, no, I was, I was a dismal failure. You're right. Would you? Sh- I, I have a lot of sympathy with uh, Gavin Morris, who, who stepped down mm. this week as the ABC's news director after six years. I mean, I can't think, six years, if, nothing other than, say, six years in the Gulag archipelago should surely be worse than sitting in his <laughs> shoes. 
Oh, I can't <laughs> imagine his job. Why, why is it so... I mean, he's a guy who seemed to have some decent values and, and at least an appreciation of professionalism because the ABC is just so unprofessional at the moment. Why is it that neither, you know, strong um, management nor the board can make any impact whatsoever on this dreadful cesspit that is the ABC? Because it's completely, it's ungovernable because the ABC is made up of different silos that operate as a power unto themselves. And they don't see themselves as answerable to someone like Gavin Morris, who's head of news. They don't see themselves as answerable to a managing director like David Anderson. They certainly don't see themselves answerable to a chairman like Ida Buttress. And they don't see themselves answerable to a board. And they're not. They're not held to account. They weren't when I was there. And the ABC is much worse now than it was then. And and and, and I think you you missed you I think you missed one significant uh, body that they're also not not don't see themselves answerable to the public that pays their 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 their, their, tax, their salaries. You're right, Simon. Sorry, that was the big, that was, you know, when I was on the board, I had one object. It was very simple. It wasn't to turn the ABC into some conservative, you know, right wing mob. It was actually just to make sure that the ABC um, abided by its charter and that it was entertaining because basically it doesn't abide by its charter and it's bloody boring. You know, I can watch Q&A instead of taking a sleeping tablet. It puts me to sleep within five minutes, guaranteed. Um, but I, I failed on both counts because they don't take the charter seriously. They don't believe in diversity of opinion. They believe in diversity of skin colour and diversity of, you know, it's great to have a Muslim there. It's great to have, you know, a, a wacky little Christian there. But they don't take diversity of opinion seriously. And they never have. And I, what, I, what gets me now about the ABC, Nick, you touched on it when you were, used the word unprofessional. They have become so sadly incompetent that they don't check sources, they don't check facts. It's like a Mickey Mouse outfit, and that's how brazen they've become, that they don't even find accuracy important anymore. And, 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 and they don't recognise it when people point this out. They don't acknowledge it. They're completely blind to it. And I was wondering... They don't you care. Know, I think they see it, Simon. They don't care. Do you think that... Um, because you know there was there was made a, there was much made a few months ago about um, the plans uh, to to, uh, to relocate part of the ABC from Ultima out to Parramatta, you know, in a, in a kind of transparent imitation of the BBC when they 15 years ago they mm. in response to, to complaints that they were too London centric, they they relocated half their production unit to Manchester, well, to just outside Manchester, and I was and I remember thinking. I wonder if Ita Butter has ever been to Parramatta. <laughs> it's just not enough, though. You know, you just have to hold people to account when they stuff up. If you hold people, and this was my argument on the board, um, if you start holding journalists to account, the message gets out really, really quickly that journalists have to be held to account. If you don't send that message out, they get emboldened and they, they just become more unprofessional and more biased in their output. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, they're not held to account. Parramatta's been doing it tough enough in this lockdown. Let's not inflict that on them, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> I think they. Should, I think. I think Ultimo South Bank, the city ABC um, headquarters, should be shut down. It's as easy as that. Let's keep all the great regional services. When I went and visited all the regional um, centres of the ABC, they were fabulous. They were run by normal people. Right? They weren't. They weren't political. They were just bringing issues, reporting. You know, they were just normal. Just people. normal people. 
I, I, actually, I've got a final confession. Like uh, like Janet, I'm an ABC failure. I was uh, briefly uh, hosted, co-hosted with Imre Saljazinski's show there in the late 90s. And um, it wasn't made easy by the fact that it was the ABC. I, just to, just one example. Um, I was in the, in the ABC office at Ultimo during the day putting together our show for that evening. I wanted a clip, an audio clip from their sound files. I went to the sound library. I couldn't find anyone there. Uh, and then until like a pile of cobwebs began talking, and it turns out, you know, this poor woman had been there for her entire life probably. And I asked her, I gave her the dates uh, that a certain program had gone to air and uh, that I needed a five minute clip from this program. And I told her where approximately it was in the show. And she, I had to fill out a form, of course, CABC. And um, she said, right, okay. I'll, uh, I'll start looking for it. I said, okay, well, we uh, we go to air at about 8.30 or whatever it was. And then she said, oh, you won't be getting this for a week. Like, what the hell, lady? Seriously? <laughs> Whoa, come on. Anyway, Simon, you've got another, another last question. Well, no, I was just going to say, if it's, if it's ABC Confession Time, I'm afraid I have some form. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, a few years ago, a few years ago, they re- revived a, 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 the ABC revived a show from, I think it was the 19, 1980s or something, called The New Inventors. And, and I, was, I, was on, I was a member of the panel on that every Wednesday night. And, and I got kicked off for doing what I know I'll never be kicked off this podcast for. Make, making jokes. <laughs> making jokes. Yeah, that'll, that'll get you in trouble every time at the ABC. Yeah. They're very po-faced at the ABC. I mean, I, I'll tell you my favourite ABC story. When I joined the board, there are obviously lots of functions that you go to as a board member with staff members. And I had a number of people come up to me at the very first event with staff members and they would literally, like, touch me. <laughs> and they would go, oh, I didn't realise you'd look like that. <laughs> like I'd have horns or something. People on the right have blood pumping through their veins as well, apparently. <laughs> It was. It was just. I was just like, so, like, don't touch me. And also, what the fuck? I mean, sorry. What are you talking about? You'll have. You'll have to clip that out. Um, but that's the thing. They actually don't think we're human. You know, the way they've treated Dominic Perrottet, they think we're we're this sort of other kind of you know species. <laughs> it is a serious point, isn't it? That, that that we are strangers to them. They 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 mix in such narrow circles that they never come across anybody, particularly somebody like you. So you know both intelligence and and uh, you know they can't dismiss you as being you know mischievous or stupid and that's a problem for them i did have i dick i did have one very sweet um reporter come up to me and whisper in my ear that she was sleeping with a national member a member of the national party as if that somehow made her <laughs> you know i think we could guess who that member of the national party is uh, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Rowan, Rowan Dean, Rowan Dean tells a similar story. Uh, Rowan dropped in there, our, our mutual friend Rowan Dean, and uh, he was in the ABC studios a few months ago. And um, and uh, a staffer came up to him and said, um, excuse me, are, are you that Rowan Dean? He said, yes, I am, I am he. And the guy said, right, just uh, come here. Uh, let's, let's just duck into this corridor for a second. And Rowan's like, yeah, sure. okay. He goes, I really like your work. <laughs> and then he sort of 
looked looked around for the camera or the or the hidden microphone and quickly ran away. So um, you know he'd um, he'd express solidarity with an evil conservative with a scary agenda. <laughs> Janet, it's been a great pleasure to have you on uh, on the six o'clock square. We'd love to have you back any time. Uh, you are your your columns are certainly an institution. Uh, one of the few that haven't been marched through by the left, and we trust it'll always remain that way. Janet Albrechtson, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, my privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. Well, that Janet Albrechtson is a class act, I think, like uh, like yourself, Simon. Well, I thought I thought Janet's uh, observations about uh, Mr. Perrottet were very good, but Perrottet is a very French name, and maybe you know, in, in this much of the same way as the Donald Trump uh, supporters uh, investigated Obama's heritage with a view to undermining his, his credentials. Maybe people will start looking at, you know, is, is, is Dominic Perrottet a descendant of the original, the French people? People, Australians don't realise how close New South Wales came to being a French colony. Oh, frighteningly close, yeah. Well, let me tell you, literally a, literally a few weeks after the first fleet arrived, a, 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 an expedition from France arrived in Botany Bay. That's why there's a, the, the, the main settlement was there. It's called La Perouse. They brought more soldiers than First Fleet brought. The First Fleet only brought soldiers to uh, to to contain the convicts, but the but Napoleon had had serious plans to make to make Australia part of his empire. We'd have had some pretty good food. We would, yeah. They they wanted to make us. They wanted to. I mean, he had plans to make, I guess, Australia. What I guess what Tahiti became. You know, a South Pacific satellite of the French Republic. Uh, and if that had happened, you know, instead of a Cobras. Australian blokes would be wearing berets. <laughs> well, they do. Well, some do. Oh. They do. I, I don't know if you bought Balmain recently, <laughs> uh, Simon, but beret wearing is big in mm. Balmain, I can tell you. And, do, do, and, do, you uh, do you mean do you mean Balmain? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Balmain. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a bit of um, La Belle France about the top end of Collins Street, of course. It's never been a huge, a huge um, population of the French, but I can remember that... In the nineties, I used to do the advertising for um, for Coles supermarkets, and um, one day they, they came to me, had a brief. They said we need to tell people that we've started doing, we started selling baguettes and croissants, and and I and I had to find out how many people because I the ad I wanted to do, I had to find out in the I think it was nineteen ninety four or five or something. There was something like twenty five thousand French people in Australia. So the headline for my for my magazine ad, announcing that they were now selling croissants and baguettes, was. The headline was, there are about 25,000 French people living in Australia. What do they do for a crust? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Look, um, we should, we should um, go back to the UK. Uh, and uh, Because I noticed um, we're now getting some great figures about people listening to this podcast. And we've got a, a sizable audience in the UK which is exceptionally generous of them because I know electricity is very scarce right now and the fact that they should use some of it charging the mobile phones to listen to this podcast is is humbling in many ways. But it, it, it's tempting to get a bit of schadenfreude, isn't it, to see that, that in Britain now they are discovering what we discovered long ago that um, – 
the wind doesn't actually blow 24 hours a day and um, the sun habitually does not shine for 24 hours a day and therefore they're in a bit of a pickle. Well, they, they do import, uh, as I understand from chatting to you guys, uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of their power from nuclear sources in France and they also have their own nuclear industry. And that's about to expand. Apparently, they're um, going to uh, they're investigating a relatively rapid rollout of sixteen mini nuclear plants. So while Australia is in ridiculously engaged in this eternal debate about whether or not we should go nuclear, uh, the UK is stepping it up. I mean, we we've had a kind of the the frog in the boiling water experience in terms of the the rising costs of our electricity. You've just cost us our French audience there, Simon. <laughs> Terrific. But 20, 20 years ago, when I when I when I came to Australia in the eighties, uh, we had we had some of the we had amongst we were electricity was was almost cheaper than almost any other country in the world, and and now we are up there. The Brits the Brits are going to get confronted by this very quickly. Uh, you know they're going to they're, they're, if you listen to the debates about what they might be facing with the what what's going to be their winter coming up. There are lots of references to something called the the winter of discontent that I remember from the uh, from the nineteen seventies as a child, when 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 literally there you know uh, mm. uh, immediately pre Thatcher. Well, right? it was it was because of a lot of it was because of the minor strikes, uh, you know, because uh, it was yeah it was pre Thatcher and she 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 dismantled the unions as a response to that. She made sure it would never happen again. But that's when they that's when the the mining unions oh, yes. had the whole country over yeah. a barrel whenever yeah. they wanted it because they knew that that, that and I think yeah. that uh, there's there are people in in Britain now who are old enough to remember that and they're they're drawing on those memories to try and make sure mm. that Britain sorts itself out. Well, I remember the winter of discontent very well indeed. People did, but I mean, a lot of people who wouldn't. This is pre Thatcher, as you say, under. The Callaghan government, um, the, the the power, you know, we had power cuts frequently because the miners had gone on strike. Uh, the, the the rubbish collectors had gone on strike. Rubbish was piling up in the street. Uh, I think if anybody wants to acquaint themselves with this, there's a very, very good documentary, which I think is available on Netflix or Stan or one of them. It's called The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, uh, where he he's in London around this time. Uh, with his aunt, Barry McKenzie, with with his aunt. Dame Edna. Dame Edna. And uh, they're looking around and, uh, and they say, isn't it terrible to see all this? And Dame Edna says, yes, and to think they're members of the Commonwealth. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a very, a very apposite scene in that film. I think it was that one, not the sequel, uh, where Barry McKenzie was in a, a London hotel room and in those days, possibly even right through to the current day, there were like little electricity meters that you typically fed. Put a sixpence in. Yeah, my, my, my grandmother had one. I'm sure Simon you go. remembers them too. I do. But um, the one in, um, in Barry Humphrey's brilliant movie, uh, it took five pound notes. <laughs> and uh, that, that gave you about 30 seconds worth of power. <laughs> You'd be lucky to get a millisecond for five pounds these days. Oh, yeah. It doesn't buy you much these days, five pound. Oh, day. no. <laughs> Talking about the winter of dis- discontent, um, the, the reason that was such a good um, uh, soundbite, even in the 70s, was because it drew on, 
you know, it was a, it was a Shakespearean phrase. You don't get you don't whether you're a politician or a journalist, you don't get many chances in your career to actually use a, a Shakespearean quote. And you know, the, the the original line from Richard the Third, the opening line of Richard the Third is "Now is the winter of our discontent." which is where that came from. But many, many years later, as an, as an advertising man, you get even fewer chances to quote Shakespeare. But I remember not long after I came to Australia, but somebody, some copywriter, some agency who was doing, I think it was a, who had the account, I think it was Paddy Pallon, who were the outdoor, the outdoor retailers, in, in big retailers. They had, a, they had a sale going where, the, where they had the brilliant headline, uh, now is the winter of our discount tents. <laughs> and perhaps we should end with that wonderful uh, fake Shakespeare in that Alan Bennett sketch where, the, do you remember, I think it rounds off something like this. And now, perchance, to bed, to sleep off all the nonsense I've just said. <laughs> yeah, we could go on. With more Shakespeare next week, eh, chaps? I think I think next week we could make it a special. Absolutely, oh, we could uh, we could um, you know uh, bolster the spirits of our besieged white community with a couple of lines from Othello. You know, mislike me not for my complexion. That kind of applies pretty broadly, doesn't it? Was that right? Let's make a date next week. Shakespeare. Right. Okay, you're on. I suppose I better round this off somehow. We'll just tune in, <laughs> tune in next week, sort of stuff, something like that. And uh, join us again next week on Radio B Double C. Yeah.